Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, thank you guys again for tuning in. I pray you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving with your family. I pray that uh, for those of you that couldn't travel because of COVID, you found yourself in a position where uh, you still had someone you could be around. As we're wrapping up this series, we felt it was important to be able to talk about something that as the book began to talk about emotions, it kind of showed how there was an impaired version of them. And then there was kind of a proper way that we wanted to live out those emotions. But there is an emotional injuring that happens. It's called trauma. And trauma is, in a sense, a haunting in your life. It's where wounds seem to last. And we want to deal with a particular form of trauma that black and brown people undergo. Um, It's considered racial trauma. Now, I'm not going to be able to, as a non-therapist, but as a pastor, to cover all the bases of trauma, but I want to deal with one aspect of racial trauma that black and brown people feel in a particular way in our country. For those of you that are watching at home, uh, the images coming up on the screen are the images that you'd see if you were back in the 1950s and 1960s, and these are images of people uh, integrating their schools. And these are white women yelling at young children and high school students as they were integrating their schools. There were picket signs there saying how good segregation was, how segregation was the Christian way, how there was a desire to not have white kids next to black and brown kids in order to maintain their purity. These women in these pictures are today most likely in their 70s, quite possibly their 80s. And there's a very good chance that these women now say racism no longer exists. Things have changed. But I always wonder, did these women ever say they were the racist ones? Like, I understand racism changed, but did you change? Do these women ever say, I was racist once. I yelled at black and brown kids as they entered into schools and I screamed at the top of my lungs because because I felt like I was doing the right things, but at core, I was deeply racist. If these women did change, what internal work did they do? Did they repent? Did their pastor preach on race and they stood up that day and came to the altar? What happened? What happened? Did they read a book? Did Martin Luther King preach? What happened so that they would change? Because these narratives are not embedded into our community, i.e. these narratives of transformation are not embedded into our community, there's a good chance that many of these folks were deeply racist They decided to change because the culture changed, but they never told their kids, I was racist once. They never looked down at their child and says, I was the one in that picture. 
I caused the problems and I had to transform. And sweetheart, this is how I changed. They act like racism ended like a season of spring. The reality is that people didn't just change. There was a transformation that happened in our country due to legislation, not because of spiritual repentance. One picture that you'll see there is of a black woman with glasses on. Her name is Elizabeth Eckford. Elizabeth Eckford is integrating her high school, Little Rock Central High School. She was part of what they would call the Little Rock Nine, eight other students that would integrate her school. As she walks in, they're yelling, go home, nigger, go back to Africa. They're yelling, two, four, six, eight. We don't want to integrate. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. And one famous picture that you'll see there on the screen, there's a woman behind Elizabeth Eckford and she's seething with anger. And her name is Hazel Mazury. Hazel, as she screams at the top of her lungs, longs for Elizabeth not to enter into her school. Well, this was 1957. Both Hazel and Elizabeth would enter into that school together they both would graduate from there. But as the years went on, this picture of Hazel screaming behind Elizabeth became at that time viral. It went everywhere. And Hazel eventually would receive letter upon letter upon letter because people from the North despised the way that she spoke to Elizabeth. Eventually, Hazel decided that she didn't want her grandkids to understand her as a racist. So she began to read, she began to change. Hazel began to take in unwed black mothers and teach them mothering skills. She would go down and take black teenagers onto field trips so that she could be able to give back to her community. Hazel tried to live a very intentional life of reconciliation. Well, fast forward to 1997, the 40-year anniversary of the graduating class there at Little Rock Central. Hazel and Elizabeth were now in the same room. Elizabeth and the rest of the Little Rock Nine wanted nothing to do with Hazel. But Hazel felt this compelling feeling like I need to build a relationship with Elizabeth. I was in a picture with this woman and now I've been giving back to black folks. I've been caring for teenage mothers. I've been helping out black teenagers. I really care for black people. So she built this relationship with her. And it, it actually tells us, there was an article that tells us that they had formed a relationship where Elizabeth and Hazel would go out to eat. They would they would go places and Hazel would always pay. Two years after that 40 year anniversary, a writer came down to do a larger article on this reconciled relationship of Elizabeth and Hazel. And as the writer began to ask questions to Elizabeth, he said, <clears throat> tell me about how your relationship is doing now. 
And Elizabeth says, no, Hazel and I don't have a relationship anymore. Our relationship has been severed. As the writer pressed in, he asked, what is it that caused you all to separate? And I quote, Elizabeth said, Hazel wanted me to be cured and be over it and for this not to go on. She wanted me to be less uncomfortable so that she wouldn't have to feel responsible anymore. The fact of the matter is, Hazel was signing up for a relationship that was great for pictures, but had no depth. Because if you are going to allow the depths of racial trauma to uh, be unpacked before you, you have to hear, how did Elizabeth feel when her name was being called out? How did she feel when all those words were being yelled at her? How did she feel when she sat in her classroom? How did she feel when she went home? That trauma sits with her. And if there was going to be true reconciliation, true healing, Hazel would have to own much more than just that picture. She'd have to own the effects. The unique dynamic of America is that America is constantly telling black people to move on. America constantly tells black people, get over it. America constantly tells black people, it was then and things changed. Never can we talk about the people that changed. We are very different than, say, South Africa. South Africa, after apartheid, understood that the work of reconciliation and the work of healing could not come merely from legislation. So what they established was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, one of the members of our church, Kinsani, who is from South Africa, told me about how this was so much, so helpful for her community there as she is South African. The, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was actually a court-like restorative justice movement. It was a body assembled in South Africa that not only ended apartheid, but witnesses who were identified as victims of racism and of gross human rights violations were invited to give statements about their experiences and some were selected in these public hearings. Perpetrators of violence could give testimony and request amnesty, amnesty from both civil and criminal prosecution. In essence, there was a moment of healing because there was a moment of honesty and truth. When we suppress our feelings, we will eventually act out on our feelings. We live in a traumatized society that is always holding in different sets of emotions. And for many black people, these emotions are suppressed as they walk into work, as they go on a plane, as they try to have their name put in for a promotion, wondering if they'll have to compete and wondering if they see me as a resume or they see me in my blackness. They walk around with those concerns. Trauma, as one author would say, is a haunting pain. As a ghost takes up residence in a home in a specific area, 
in the same way trauma takes up residence in a specific space in our lives. It pesters us, bothers us, in essence, traumatizes us. This haunting pain is psychological. It is like a thorn pricking at our side. It constantly needles at us. It is a mental distress that you wish you could lose. And yet, more and more, it is compounding. This haunting trauma is with you everywhere. <clears throat> My mother was raised in Moss Point, Mississippi in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s along with my father. I was raised in New York, the suburbs of New York, and when I was growing up, there was not racism in the same effect, more overt racism. So I grew up in a way in which I could not identify the same things that my mother could identify. I'll never forget going into a pharmacy with her. Now you have to understand the backdrop to what happened in this moment. At the pharmacy, because they believed that older people had a hard time signing their name, they said you could just put an X by your name. So I walked into the pharmacy. And as I walked up to the pharmacist with my mom to get her medicine, the pharmacist said, ma'am, you don't have to sign your name, just put an X there. Now you have to understand that the history of black people in black spaces is that black people were assumed they were not literate and assumed they couldn't sign their name. So when we walked up to that counter, the man said, now ma'am, you don't have to sign your name. And my mother took that pen, slammed it down, signed her name, slammed the pen back down again, looked at her and says, I can sign my name. Now I'm like, hey, what's going on? I just, I thought we were here for pills, mama. What are we doing here? But the reality is my mother is carrying around centuries of trauma inside of her. She's carrying around the stories of father, grandfather, and the great-grandfather that was a slave. These stories infect our everyday small things. And I carry those stories of my mother. Race one could say is a human invention, which would be true. A caste system of sorts. One in which black people and Native American peoples are considered lesser human beings. Even more so on top, uh, I would say that immigrants are even considered more human and more fully recognized as citizens, more so than black people and Native Americans. This caste system, therefore, causes black people to constantly be at the bottom. And as we experience the effects of this caste system, this, as Paul would talk about, principality and power that is infecting our world today, we are seeing systems of sin, people collectively sitting, creating in the ghettos, redlining, creating systems harder for some to get jobs. And these systems have an effect physically and emotionally on people of color. Now, on one end, we talk about jobs. On another end, we talk about stories of overt racism. On another end, we talk about housing. On another end, we could talk about police brutality. 
On other ends, we could talk about different instances, but the reality of trauma is that it has a cumulative effect on our psyche. It has a cumulative effect on our bodies, causing chronic stress, constantly wondering what may happen. A dear friend of mine who's in Memphis, her young boys are 14. She sent them, they're twins, she sent them to the corner store to get milk. She created a group text to say, my boys are going out by themselves to get milk. Pray for me. Pray for me. My, my boys are walking to the store to get milk. Pray for me. You see the stress level for black and brown people where going to, to the store to get milk, you create a text message like someone is off going to war. The fear, the difficulty of understanding safety, all wrapped up in centuries of pain. As we try to deal with these stressors, we, we end up grieving our way to a potential healing. But the fact is, is that many of us have unprocessed racial trauma, different microaggressions that we've experienced in work, with friends, at jobs, and quite possibly in church. Part of what we find is that there is a lack of a comprehensive understanding of American history. And because of that nature, that incomplete rendering of history, what you find is black and brown people having an experience in America and our white counterparts who we may have gone to college with or maybe even have been friends with or have some kind of connection with, you hear them saying, move on from that trauma in ways that you would never hear someone saying to a woman, move on from the trauma of a sexual trauma, of any kind of violent trauma. You would never hear someone saying, move on. And in the nature of our country, that is the unique nature of racial trauma, a trauma you're told didn't really exist. A systemic racism that some would say is a conspiracy and made up. The most uh, delusional way in which we are able to deal with trauma is saying it never really happened. This, for many black and brown people, causes a hysteria, a disorienting nature, a frustration, and a rage. But may I say this? Trauma is not only what happens to the victim, but it also is what happens to the abuser. The abuser that thinks they could use someone, the abuser that thinks they can oppress someone, also has a trauma. Let me flip these words. I know that in many ways we use this term white fragility, coined and now used often by, um, I think her name is D'Angelo, the, the, the author. And although white fragility is a good term, I would say that that is trauma. When you bring up race and somebody's like, well, what you mean? And you, you, you can't even talk about it. I would say many ways you've been traumatized to believe that you can't, we can't bring up race. 
I think that in many ways you are experiencing a trauma. When you've created a theology that says that race and racism doesn't exist, I think you've been theologically traumatized. Jeremiah 6, 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's what black people feel. When you've said there's a peace that's not actually existing, this trauma for our white brothers and sisters and their inability to talk about race, and yet the trauma of black and brown people to feel the deep impacts of race. Whiteness, as we understand it in our country, is a category established purely out of power, a centering in our country and a centering in our world. We understand the white way of doing things as normal. And we are often encouraged to do things the way that white people would do things. So much so not even giving black people an opportunity to have a a category that is seen as valuable or credible, but just the black way of doing things, not another way, and white as normal and standardized. People of color, therefore, have difficulty finding our way in this country. We have difficulty dealing with our unprocessed and ongoing trauma. We have difficulty with the compounding of loss and grief, the compounding loss of household members walking to the store, compounding loss of seeing foster care and black people going there, incarceration, long-term hospitalization, an untimely death. These compounding losses and the journey towards healing causes us to go through stages after stages of pain. How then do we move towards a place of healing? Sung Chang Ra, in his book, Prophetic Lament, says this. Lament is honesty before God and each other. If something has truly been declared dead, there is no use in sugarcoating that reality. To hide from suffering and death should be an act of denial. If an individual would deny the reality of death during a funeral, friends would justifiably express concern over the mental health of that individual. In the same way, should we not be concerned over a church that lives in denial over the reality of death in our midst? In essence, what Dr. Ra gets at is that there is, we do not have a theology that allows us to see the brokenness in our world. Hazel, who I bet was most likely a Christian, didn't have a theology to say I'm sorry. She didn't have a theology to say I was racist. She didn't have a theology to say I was caught into a system built out with principalities and powers that were going beyond me. She didn't have a theology for that. And therefore, she could not cry out, cry out in repentance. Lamenting often is done when we don't have an answer, and yet we're overwhelmed by pain, lament is done when we are deeply hurt and deeply wounded. Lament was done in slavery when black people would just cry out to their Lord to be able to be delivered from the moments that they were in. And yet lament is not only for our ancestors, it's not just for lamentations, but lament is for us 
one of the things that we could never get caught up in as black and brown people is trying to find our satisfaction in a new electorate or a new policy. Evil will always find power and evil will always create systems. That does not mean that we are okay with the way things are. But what it does mean is that we are always people of hope and our hope is found in crying out to our God. Interesting Psalm, Psalm 88, it's a unique Psalm. It's a Psalm of lament. And at the end of the Psalm, the Psalmist ends up saying, man, I'm in darkness. And it's one of the unique Psalms where he doesn't end it in hope. He's frustrated. But the nature of this Psalm shows that the the Psalmist is acknowledging, though I don't feel like I have hope and though I'm in darkness, the Psalmist is still crying out to God. The Psalmist is still not walking away from God. The Psalmist is not leaving the room. He stays in front of God's face and he's yelling at God saying, darkness is my friend. In many ways, the Psalmist pictures for us, what does it mean to live in a traumatized world, in a confusing world, in a chaotic world? When we do not feel we have the answers, we still take our answerless moment before God and we cry out before him. Our spirit laments within us. We cry out to God for the systems and the people that we have seen hurt. We do this instead of self-isolation. We do this instead of living in our rage. We stand in the presence of God with our pain and we acknowledge our pain to him. Psalm 56 and eight says, you have kept counting of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I love that. Psalm 56. Psalmist says, when I cry, you keep them in a bottle. You are very aware of my tears. For every moment that a young black woman has had to fight for someone to articulate their name, fight for their, themselves to be able to express their hairstyle, fight in order to compete against white men who clearly have an advantage over them. God sees your tears. For every black man that has had to walk in the streets and look at the officer, for every black man that has had to walk in the streets and slowly put his feet down not too hard so that the white woman in front of them would not get afraid and think they're gonna steal their purse. For every time you've had to go into an elevator and be presumed as someone who's going to be a threat when actually you make more money than everyone in there. For those moments that are short-sighted and begin to wound us, we have a God who sees those tears. We have a God who sees and is available in those moments. The nature of our lament is crying out out of the frustration of this world, out of the trauma in this world. And the point of lament is not merely just an outlet in our frustration and our sorrow. The point of lament is not just in asking God why. The point of lament is knowing this, that God laments too, that God cries with us that God sees these systems as well. That as we still cry the names of Tamir Rice, 
as we still say the names of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, as we still say the names of Trayvon Martin, we say those names recognizing that there is a system corrupted by whiteness and white power in our country that continues, that allows this, these moments to continue. And yet God cries too. He is affected by these moments. The mystery of lament is that God is not just up in the clouds somewhere looking down, watching our pain, but he is in pain with us. He is affected by the troubles of this world. John 11, it says, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then you get the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus knew that he was about to resurrect Lazarus. But in resurrecting him, right before he resurrects him, before he does the miracle, he cries. It is the beauty in our lament that we know that God not only holds our tears in a bottle, but he too cries with us. For every Hazel that cannot be honest with Elizabeth and cannot bear their pain, we re-traumatize ourselves when we want the country to understand our pain. But we find healing when we know. We find healing when we have a hope. Our hope is in a God who weeps before he answers. Our hope is in a God who weeps before he heals. Our hope is in a God who weeps before he dismantles the systems. And so tonight, as some of you have carried many wounds, some of you have carried the wounds of jobs and the wounds of friends, before God changes the situation, he sits with you and he cries with you. He understands your pain. Let him grieve with you. Let him sit with you. And there might be other things outside of racial trauma. There might be all types of trauma you faced in your past. As we've talked about emotions, there are some things that will haunt us for a long time. As you are haunted by that pain, let God sit with you. Let God speak to you. Allow him to carry your pain with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the way that you are able to carry our pain. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way that you're able to cry with us. Thank you that we have a God who cries before he answers. Now unto you, Lord, carry our pain, carry our moments of grief, and heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. 
You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.